Hey, Crossings Podcast community. This teaching is called Jesus Summed It All Up and is the 14th teaching in our John study. It was taught by Molly Conaway on January 31st, 2021. Thanks for listening. Hey, Crossings. So first, I just want to honor and commend you for this work you're doing in participating in this study of the Gospel of John. Uh, for those of you doing the work in the workbook or just showing up here on this um, YouTube gathering or our Zoom worship gatherings, um, it's reflecting really well in your attendance sheets that we're taking. Um, just kidding. This is just the work that we do. If, if we believe and we say we want to be about the postures and priorities of Jesus, the work is to, to read the postures and priorities of Jesus and then to translate those into practices, um, ways that make sense in our actual lives and in our little corners of the world. So uh, for those of you who aren't really sure what you think about Jesus at this point, uh, I guess there's no better way to find out. Thank you for doing this study with us. We are today in John chapter 12. So chapter 12 of 21, we're over halfway through of this gospel of John. Uh, I'd like to step back for a second and remember where we are in this story. So some people like to look at the gospel of John as a, a two-part play. So you have act one and act two. We are today at the last scene of act one, the, the very end of act one. So let's look at act one. The word became flesh. Uh, there's the story about John the Baptist and the disciples kind of preparing the way and pointing to Jesus. There was when Jesus turned water into wine and turned the tables at the temple. He met the Samaritan woman at the well. There were healings and miracles. Uh, all through the Gospel of John, we find out that people just weren't really understanding. They weren't catching on to what Jesus was saying and doing. There was the woman caught in the act of adultery. There were more miracles and more questions. There was the teaching about the Good Shepherd. Lazarus was raised from the dead. And then, like Rachel said this morning, there was the triumphal entry. And then, at the end of Act 1, there's kind of this in-summary statement. It's Jesus' last big public appearance before his trial and crucifixion. Before we turn to Act 2, where there's these intimate moments between Jesus and his friends, and it's the long road to the cross. So John chapter 12. After the triumphal entry uh, on a donkey, John chapter 12, verse 17 says this, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, was there giving eyewitness accounts. It was because they had spread the word of the latest God sign that the crowd swelled to a welcoming parade. The Pharisees took one look and threw up their hands. It's out of control. The world's in a stampede after him. There were some Greeks in town who had come up to the worship at the feast. They approached Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Sir, we want to see Jesus. Can you help us? So we don't know if these Greek-speaking travelers were Jewish, so like insiders when it comes to the temple, or if they were Greek-speaking Gentiles, so non-Jews, outsiders, who were led into certain parts of the temple. All we know is that they had traveled in for this festival and wanted to see Jesus. Maybe they were catching on to who Jesus was and wanted to see him for themselves. We don't know. What we do know is that all through the Old Testament and all through the New Testament, part of God's plan was to bring all people back to himself. 
There's this amazing writing in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 11 talks about this root that will come up and that the spirit of the Lord will rest on him and lion will lay down with the lamb and all nations will rally to him. The Jews and the Gentiles, the insiders and the outsiders, the ones who seem like they belong, but especially the ones who don't seem like they belong. Through Jesus, all people are being brought back to God. You know, part of um, a big part of who we are as crossings is this helping people find their way back to God. All people. I mean, it's our mission. It's our vision. It's the way we filter everything we do. It means we, all of us, are to be working out our own journey back to God and asking the questions about what we can do, yes, even during COVID, to help people discover what it means to be part of the kingdom of God a way of life that God intends things, a way of shalom, a way of peace, a way of restoration, a way of courage and wholeness and creativity and authenticity. Finding our way back to God and helping people find their way back to God means discovering how to be most fully human, most fully alive, and then demonstrating and, and giving some of that fully aliveness away. I hope that you're thinking about this. I, I hope that you're thinking about how to help people, including yourself, find their way back to God. I mean, this whole deal is way bigger than me and, and my personal salvation. And I think that this chapter, this scene with Jesus, reveals that Jesus knows it was even, even bigger than him. Because in this moment in John chapter 12, Everyone starts seeing that, yes, all people everywhere are coming back to Jesus. And the Pharisees throw up their hands. There was something about this Greek's interest in Jesus that signaled to him that his life and work on earth was about to be complete. That's the end of the act. The story is about to take a dramatic turn. So back to the text. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip together told Jesus. So commentators say that the, the Greeks in town, which I think would be a really good band name, the Greeks in town, um, they say that they went to Philip because Philip was a Greek name. But how, I mean, how did they know? Do they, are there like temple name tags? And also, why did Philip need to go to Andrew to go tell Jesus that these out-of-towner Greeks wanted to see Jesus when Philip was like, dude, I need backup? I mean, who knows? And instead of Jesus saying, okay, let's go talk to him, Jesus answered, time's up. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real. And eternal. Um, I love when Jesus mostly ignores the question and gives some bizarro metaphor that nobody understands. I mean, have you seen Ted Lasso? It's a total Ted Lasso move. Um, but I do love a good garden metaphor. So Ben and I run this neighborhood garden, and during quarantine, we've been turning basically our whole front yard into a garden. And we have this ongoing like um, marital battle um, about whether or not our porch is too cluttered. So I started noticing something on our front porch. I started noticing this basket and I started noticing um, rotten vegetables sitting on our front porch. So rotten red peppers and rotten okra. 
and they were just sitting there and they started to get like nasty and like ooze like there was juice all over the front porch and there were fruit flies i mean it was disgusting and so i i just i wasn't prepared to enter into the discussion. So sometimes I would just take the rotten vegetables and toss them over the front porch to get rid of them. So it was just like not an issue. I figured I could blame it on our kids or something. Um, but every time I tossed one over, I would notice more rotten vegetables sitting on our front porch. So finally, I got the courage to say, Ben, why are all of these rotten vegetables sitting on our front porch? I was getting ready for some you know, big debate. But Ben said, Molly, they're heirloom vegetables. So heirloom vegetables are like specific varieties that have been around forever and ever, and the seeds basically haven't been touched. So when you buy like a seed packet from the store, a lot of those um, are hybrid and have been like touched for commercial reasons and toyed with. But you get these heirloom seeds, these heirloom plants, because they're the best and like most purest plants to grow and then reuse the seeds over and over again. So Ben says, Molly, they're heirloom vegetables. I'm drying them out so that we can replant the seeds next year. So I was like, oh, okay. This, they're supposed to rot and dry out. Like, that's how it works. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We've talked about this grain of wheat metaphor before. It's the way we know that death and resurrection are built into the fabric of creation. I mean, in a garden, it's understood. This, this way of life is just understood. To support a plant, to make it more robust and full and vibrant, you prune it. You actually break parts of it off, even if those parts are like living and well. It doesn't make sense, but it's how it works. To create a new plant completely, you have to have seeds. And seeds don't just appear. They come from dead plants. A grain of wheat has to die and fall and be buried in the dirt for more wheat to grow. Death and resurrection. It was written into the code of creation. It was written into the story of God who's putting the world back together. At this point, uh, I think Jesus might be tired of having to explain everything to people and for them to keep saying, Jesus, we don't know what you mean. He just goes ahead and explains. In verse 25, he says, those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. So I used to teach ESL, ELL. I know we have a lot of ELL teachers in our community, and one of the hardest and funniest things to teach ELL students are idioms, English idioms, phrases that say something totally weird and confusing if you actually take them literally. It's so hard to teach people in English idioms. So think about it, break a leg. Like, wait, in an intense nerve-wracking moment, we're actually telling somebody good luck by telling them to break their body part in front of everybody. Um, it's raining cats and dogs. That's literally my worst nightmare. I'm feeling under the weather. I mean, aren't we, are we not all under the weather? And what if the weather's really nice? So I like to read John 12, 25, and 26 as if it's a Jewish idiom. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is not saying we are literally supposed to hate our lives. This is not some anti-self-care statement that we're supposed to like torture ourselves because Jesus told us to hate our lives. Go back to the garden, the grain of wheat. 
The most important way to cultivate a garden is to let the living things, the plants, live the way they were intended to live. Because if you do, the seeds will fall and more things will sprout and flower. To be completely and fully and rightly human means to give away some of the life and goodness and shalom that we have been given so that life and goodness and shalom may sprout up somewhere else. That's what it means to hate your life in this verse. Those who love their lives so much and just want to hold on and, and try and hold out and keep it to itself forever end up with lives of selfishness and security. I mean, I don't know if you've tried, but you can't convince a dandelion to hold on to its seeds, even if, especially if my three-year-olds are around. A living thing that's existence is only about holding it to itself and its own security. It's not a living thing. You don't see it anywhere else in creation. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. One scholar and commentator says this about uh, this verse. To love one's life here means to give it priority over the interests of God's kingdom. Similarly, to hate one's life is to give priority to the interests of God's kingdom over it, over one's life. The kingdom of God and eternal life are in practice interchangeable terms, since eternal life is the life of the age to come, when God's kingdom is established on earth. But in this gospel especially, eternal life is something that can be received and enjoyed here and now through faithful union with Christ. Are we catching on to this idiom? To love one's life is to selfishly be obsessed with security, holding on to it. To hate one's life is to give it over as part of God's kingdom, as part of God's story, and it becomes a life that participates in the restoration and the renewal and the recreation of all things. I don't know if you're uh, following along in this study guide uh, that we put together at the beginning of John, but Heather Gorman writes the part about this, um, about this verse. And what she said in there was, was brilliant because she, she applied it to what this might look like. Here's what it says. She says, loving life in this world means buying into the lie that my value is measured by how big my bank account is and how small my waist is. But hating life in this world means recognizing that every penny in my bank account is from God, so there's no way to use my money except generously. It means recognizing that what really matters is my character. Loving life in this world means accepting that consumerism is a given and that there are a limited amount of goods, so we better accumulate them for ourselves. But hating life in this world means rejecting the mentality of scarcity and hoarding. It means refusing to overconsume at the expense of our health, at the expense of our earth, at the expense of those who are overworked and underpaid. Loving life in this world means that marriage is about my pleasure and my personal fulfillment. And as soon as it stops giving me those things, I'm free to, I'm free to leave. But hating life in this world means prioritizing my spouse over my own pleasure and fulfillment. It means prioritizing reconciliation and self-sacrifice. Loving life in this world means welcoming our friends, those who look like us, believe like us, act like us, vote like us, those who increase our reputation and our value in the world. 
But hating life in this world means loving our enemies, the strangers, those whom the world tells us to fear, those on the other side of the racial, religious, sexuality, or political aisle. Because if we love those who already love us, what reward do we have? Doesn't even the world do that? You know, sometimes we talk about the way of Jesus as like countercultural, like an upside down way of life. And I don't know, I'm not sure I like that anymore. I don't think Jesus' intent for Christians was to withdraw from society and create some strange subculture in the basement of a church somewhere. I'm starting to think that the way of Jesus is right side up. And then our purpose becomes learning and demonstrating the right side up way of Jesus in an upside down, confused and chaotic world. I mean, however you look at it, the way of Jesus is not going to make sense to everyone. It didn't make sense to everyone at the time. All people knew to do then was to kill it off before it disrupted too much. So before that curtain closes on Act 1, before the curtain closes at the end of John 12, something a little crazy happens. Verse 27, Jesus says, right now I'm shaken. What am I going to say? Father, get me out of this? No, this is why I came in the first place. I'll say, Father, put your glory on display. And then a voice came out of the sky. I have glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. The listening crowd said, it's thunder. Others said, an angel spoke to him. Jesus said, the voice didn't come for me. It came for you. At this moment, the world is in crisis. Now Satan, the ruler of this world, will be thrown out, and I, I am lifted up from the earth, and I'll attract everyone to me and gather them around me. He put it this way to show that he was going to be put to death. And Jesus' last public teaching before he turns towards death is a summary. And and I don't know if this is supposed to be a summary of everything he just said in chapter 12. It seems to me like it's a summary of everything he said in the gospel up to this point. In the past 12 chapters, he wants to sum it up this way. Jesus summed it all up when he cried out, Whoever believes in me believes not just in me, but in the one who sent me. Whoever looks at me is looking, in fact, at the one who sent me. I am the light that has come into the world so that all who believe in me won't have to stay any longer in the dark. End act one, close the curtain, intermission. And during intermission, the lights dim back on and people, you know, bustle in their seats and go get more popcorn and go to the restroom. And as they go about their busyness, they're faced with a decision. Was Jesus the mouthpiece of the living, active God? Was, was seeing Jesus the same thing as seeing God? Was there a light that had come into the world, shining in the darkness, that invited them to, to make that light their own and then walk in it? Uh, Jesus presented himself to the people of Israel. And ever since, people have wondered whether or not it could be true, or if John was just writing some strange religious fantasy. N.T. Wright says this, but though the historical questions are always open, 
and the proper research into them is always to be encouraged. If John himself is right, the real reason for doubt is the shuddering fear that maybe it is after all true. We do well to ponder all this, to reflect on our own response to John's portrait of the word made flesh. This is the point in the story when Jesus speaks to the crowds in Jerusalem for the last time. The next time they see him, it will be as a prisoner standing before Pilate, he'll be on trial and his words will be sifted as evidence against him. But the real trial is already underway here in chapter 12. Jesus is staring into the darkness and the darkness is staring back. And everyone who reads this chapter must sooner or later make up their minds which side they're on. So this is the point in most church services when the preacher would invite all the sinners to come forward. Um, so if you're feeling moved, somebody is, is waiting for you at your front door. I'm just kidding, that's real weird. Um, but seriously, no matter where you find yourself uh, with Jesus today, by taking this meal we're about to take together, this, this bread and this juice, um, we take it and hold all these questions and tensions, the doubts and the fears, and say for today, like for just this, this moment, May this bread and juice lead us to trust a little bit more in who Jesus said he was. So while we sing, uh, I invite you to take this bread and this juice together as a symbol, as a sign that points to the way death and resurrection are built into the fabric of creation, the way death and resurrection are the thing that continues to sustain us. <laughs> 